we're so exceptional at building things, at using our minds to create a world around us that's different than the one that we inhabited just prior. And then that world begins to influence us. And so for me, the question is, how is that influence happening? Everyone, welcome back to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Today's episode is a very exciting one for me because I am speaking with Dimitri Kafinis. Dimitri is the host of one of my very favorite podcasts, Hidden Forces, in which he explores a multitude of influences, trends, and power structures that govern the world we live in. I've learned so much from his conversations with experts in cybersecurity, geopolitics, high finance, and philosophy. In this conversation, you will hear the depth of thinking that Dimitri has put into these very heady topics, and we explore some of the ways in which navigating modern times is exceptionally difficult and complex relative to periods of the past. I so enjoyed talking with Dimitri, and I think that you will enjoy getting a peek inside his brain. Here is Dimitri Kafinas. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Dimitri, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. I'm excited to be talking with you. My pleasure to be on, Aaron. Thanks for having me. So there's a, a bad habit in, in podcasts generally where hosts kind of have to figure out a novel way to blow smoke up the butts of their guests mm-hmm. and uh, you know say these different nice things to them. But I can very earnestly and genuinely say that your show is one of my absolute favorites. It is one of the podcasts that I look to as a model, really from an interviewing and a, a, a topic standpoint for people to explore. And so one of my, you know, hopes or goals with this conversation is that if anyone is, you know, listening to me, aware of me and not yet aware of hidden forces that they'll at least give it a, give it a try. And I think that maybe the, the kind of best entree here into a conversation I want to have with you is just the name of the pod itself, hidden forces. This idea that, you know, generally, if you've taken a civics class, if you've read a headline, you could articulate the very apparent frontline forces that seem to be acting on people. But the exploration of those that are less legible, less right there in your face, but have an enormous impact is a kind of really cool intellectual pursuit. So uh, take me, the audience, a little bit deeper into that name specifically of the show and how you came up with it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's kind of right. Uh, it, it was just a recognition that most of what we experience in our life is, is surface layer phenomena. So that, that's absolutely true in financial markets, which is where I experienced it most in my media career, because I started with, on radio and in TV on the finance media side. But it's true across the board. I mean, all these conversations that are sort of in vogue lately around simulation theory deal with that as well. The, the idea being that we really don't know whether or not, we, we don't know really what reality is. We sort of approximate it through the use of models or, so we could be living in a simulation and not know it. So it's the kind of map in the territory. But the, the, the underlying reality, if, if you believe this, does influence what we experience on the surface. So the idea is, what are those deep down the vector forces 
which are, which if you move them slightly, cause massive changes in our experience of the world. And so the idea of hidden forces was to apply the kind of framework that I had been using in financial markets to everything else, which is why when I started the program, the episodes I started with were episodes on postmodernism, philosophical mathematics, television history and culture. I mean, television history is a really fascinating one because we don't realize just how much impacts, let's say movies like Rambo or shows like, um, um, not Murphy Brown. I'm, I'm confusing Murphy Brown with someone else. No, it was that, it was the, 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 the um, it, it was a movie with um, a working woman that was very popular. I can't, I, I'm blanking on it now, but, or like, you know, Knight Rider, for example, Knight Rider, what, what it, 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 it told us about our relationship to technology and what we, where we felt the future was going. But anyway, the reason I brought up Rambo is because Rambo, even though it's not TV, it's a, it's a movie, is that it reframed our relationship to the Vietnam War. Like if you look at the movies and, and, uh, and program that came out in the 70s around that, again, I'm, I'm talking now movies and not television, um, Apocalypse Now, uh, Platoon came out in the early 80s. Our relationship to the war, war was very dark and it was seeped very much in the language of the 1960s, um, late 60s, early 70s, and the anger against the government for the war, for bombing Cambodia, Laos, et cetera. And what you saw later was the, through Hollywood, the culture telling itself a new story about its role in the war. You know, we went from being the, the bad guys who were bombing uh, the Vietnam, Vietnam to being the good guys who were going to rescue our POWs who were being held captive by these, you know, really awful um, communists. And so it's, there's an interesting, it's an interesting example of the interplay, both what we want, but then also what we tell ourselves and how we can move so far away from actually what we knew to be empirically true, right? Which was our role in the Vietnam War. That's just one example, but it's true across the board. And that it's sort of, it's an, it's an, it is another way of talking about taking an epistemic approach to truth, to fact-finding, to understanding the world. And I think this is more important than it's ever been in my lifetime because the world feels more propagandized, my, my world, so to speak, the world that I inhabit, feels more propagandized than I ever remember it. And it feels like a giant battlefield of narratives where you're constantly getting hustled. And so I think it's more important than ever to be an independent thinker and Hidden Forces started as a show that was meant to give you the tools that you needed in order to come to your own determination of what the world was, to be able to differentiate between the map and the territory. And that was up to you. What I wanted to do was bring the tools to make that happen and to, to help you challenge consensus narratives about what I now call the structures, the, power, the, 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 power, the, the powers that structure our world. So the forces that structure our world. So that's what Hidden Forces is. That's sort of the origin story of the name. Right on. And it, it has the capacity to splinter into so many different directions. So you start with the economics. And I've always been of the mind that, you know, often, particularly for folks that, that kind of don't focus on that side of that field of study, that it's actually influencing way more than one might suspect. So I started with a degree in political science and we're breaking apart, like, how did this war, you know, get set off? 
And so often there were these just kind of like fundamental economic realities underpinning those, which drew me away from the study of the political science to economics. And so, you know, to, to me, just even being able to point at, to use another, you know, simple metaphor, the signal versus the noise in the sense of what is actually the catalyst for something, what is actually the driver is exceptionally hard to do because in addition to being propagandized, it's exceptionally complex between the digital revolution, the, you know, the, 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 the dangerous uh, kind of footing that certain, you know, bellwether blue chip historically companies find themselves on in the present day globalization, geopolitical unraveling, an, an arguably new Cold War, at least in narrative between a US and China, there's there's an immense amount of complexity to try and absorb, which it like it basically creates the scenario for that propaganda to happen because there's so many people just trying to make sense. It, 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 it scales so far beyond what we're biologically optimized to be able to deal with when our biology is like, hey, 120 person tribe, do I trust these people? Are we okay? And kind of looking outwards. And now that's being, you know, scaled to these just numbers that don't really make sense in a human brain. Yeah, that's a really great point. It, so, I mean, a, a few thoughts. One, in, in terms of the economic reasons for war, that's absolutely true. The Civil War is a great example. It was a war that it, that it was founded on a moral quandary between slavery and abolition, but there were economic forces that made the war possible, uh, that actually pushed the North towards uh, outright, outright confrontation with the South, where I would argue it wouldn't have either wanted to or been able to do that had it not been industrialized. So there were, there were very different economic interests that were diverging, and tariff policy reflected that, US tariff policy reflected that, so there were economic components to the war, so I totally agree. In terms of what you're getting to, which is the complexity of the world, it's a really interesting observation. I mean, it may, the thing that immediately came to my mind was because I'm having Sergey Naz Nazarov on the show, or Nazarov, I don't know how you pronounce his last name, the founder of Chainlink, which is a decentralized oracle that's used, you know, it's the primary oracle that's used in DeFi applications and other smart contracts. And it, it made me think of it made me think of the world of blockchain and decentralized computing because I do think that there is this desire to bring simplicity and order to the complexity of the world. And, you know, I think what's important there, and I'm still in the process of meditating on this because I just started prepping for this today. Again, you know, I'm of the view that you can never know what reality is, you know, like in an ontological sense, you can never actually be clear on it. Perhaps it's possible to know it, but you won't know that you know it. So you won't have an epistemic view of it. So what I, I sort of, I think what it's important for the, one of the things that I think is important to develop clarity around this in the blockchain community is to recognize that when we talk about truth, when we talk about decentralization or the truth machine, Michael Casey's great book, what we're really talking about is, um, and, and I think this comes across sometimes in the conversation, is consensus. It's a consensus view of reality. It's not reality. It's like, do we agree that this is the map of reality? So I think what we're struggling with right now is because the world is changing so rapidly, our models of the world no longer work as effectively. And so we need new models in order to understand it. We've seen this in the field of economics. I mean, you know, 
how many more people talk about behavioral uh, science today than they used to? You know, Daniel Kahneman was nowhere 20 years ago. I mean, I took economics in college. We didn't even, there were like no banks. Like we didn't learn about the financial system. We didn't know. I mean, when we were taught interest rates, it didn't make sense. You know, I had a huge aha moment in my, I've talked about this before on the show. I think I was failing intermediate macro, failing right to the final. I was heading into the final, like the night before the final with, I wasn't failing. That's not correct. I was, I was going to fail because I had no clue what like the course was about. The teacher was this, it was also awful because the teacher had the worst Italian accent ever. Every time he said focus to the class, he would say focus and everyone would laugh because we're teenage, we're not teenagers, but we're in college. So, and then I got it. It came to me and I saw interest rates were the price of money and boom, everything just made sense. So, um, so, it, you know, and post-financial crisis, this, there's been so much work on this front, right? And you've seen like the rise to celebrity of people like Nassim Taleb and others. So I think that's kind of where we, we are today. We have this, the, the world is changing rapidly. We're one of those, in one of those periods of, of rapid change. And the models that we've used to structure reality artificially in order to make sense of it so that we can move through it aren't as predictive. They don't work as well. And so again, bringing it back to hidden forces, one of the reasons that I started Hidden Forces was because I felt that we were in a world where those models are less valuable. The educations you get from college are less useful. And so you need to rely more on yourself and you have the tools to do it. People are far more intelligent and able to learn than they realize. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of what I was thinking about in response to your question or your comment. Right on. So the other part here, you mentioned TV, you mentioned this previous time and talk about a model, there were just a couple channels, just a couple airwaves, and the just sheer girth of the attention that could be funneled across a narrative in that kind of very concentrated way was exceptionally powerful. And you've, I, I don't know the exact, you know, percentile of the Hidden Forces show, but you are at the very least in the top decile. Who knows exactly where that lands, just in terms of an audience like that. that you can reach. Top decile. I like that. <laughs> within the landscape of podcasts, but we know that, you know, even the biggest podcast is a, a, a fraction of the, the scale that could be reached with a story that's being told. So it's simultaneously this amazing opportunity for the individual to influence the narrative, to contribute for bad actors, all sorts of other stuff, but taking it back to hidden forces and where with this, you know, on a relative basis, smaller hose than the old TV channels, radio stations of yore, but in the context of today, an exceptional uh, power and, and candidly responsibility, where are you most drawn to bringing people's attention and having them be aware of in the context of these hidden forces, the things that, you know, I, I don't know how you sleep, if it's something that keeps you up at night, or if it's something that, you know, you feel uh, a sense of responsibility. I know for me, I just feel like the conversation around deep fakes is not happening to a degree that I would like to see, but I, I'm much more interested in, in you, the, the conversations that you're hoping more people will latch onto. Well, I mean, you know, to take it even further down the vector, you know, when you bring up deep fakes, what you're really talking about is truth and epistemology. And how do we know what's true? How can we know if Joe Biden came out and told the country that we're under cyber attack or that we're, or whatever? I mean, how do we, how do we validate content 
today or how do we know something was said today when the way in which we've definitively been able to prove it is through, let's say, video or audio, you know, like, like go to the videotape. <laughs> was that, who was the broadcaster who used to say that in sports? Let's go to the videotape. I mean, that is like deep embedded in the culture. So to your point, I agree. I think questions of truth and reality, what is truth, what is real? I think that is very fundamental to where, to one of my deepest sort of interests. I think even deeper than that for me, I think has, I've realized looking at the episodes that I've done and where I think I've done some of my best work with the show and where I think we've led uh, both in terms of quality and in terms of lead time over others is at the intersection of humanity humanity and culture and technology. So how our brains, we're like incredible builders. And in this way, I've also, it's why I love, I am Greek and I'm not one of those Greeks that's like Greeks are the best at everything. I hate when people do that. I really do. I hate it. But, um, but I do, you know, I do value the Greeks in a way that I don't value the Romans. The Romans were incredible builders. They were incredible architects. The Greeks couldn't match that. Of course, the Romans also came after that, but the Romans imported so much of what's the of what of what ancient Greece created culturally, and so what I what we what we're really great at. And there's another great quote by I wish I, I need to start I need to actually grab the book and have it here because I've been thinking about it a lot recently. Edward O. Wilson, the endemologist, the scientist who developed the theory of eusociality, wrote his most recent book, maybe his last will be, it'll turn out to be his last because in his eighties, the book was called on the, I think it was called on the meaning of human existence. And in the book, he talks about how if an alien species were to visit earth, you know, what would they find interesting in our society? You know, you could think about this as a thought experiment. Like if we were going to go to a different planet and we're going to visit a society that was supposedly inferior to ours, right? Uh, At least technically, what would we find valuable? Well, you know, his point was it certainly will not be our mathematics or our science because this species will have, you know, progressed far beyond anything that we have, but they will find value in our arts and in our, our culture. And if, we, if you think about it, this is also what fascinates us about other species and aboriginal societies. We're not interested in their technology. It's like, oh, they have a really great bow and arrow. Like, did you see it just how tightly they wound that string? How did they do that? That's not what interests us. What interests us is, what makes them who they are and all the, the, those, the, the cultural aspects of it. So for me, it, it's really, we're so exceptional at building things, at using our minds to create a world around us that's different than the one that we inhabited just prior. And then that world begins to influence us. And so for me, the question is, how is that influence happening? Well, who are we? What do we value? What makes us who we are? What do we value in ourselves? And what is worth holding on to? Who are we so that when we get through this cycle of innovation, we go through constant cycles of innovation, is there something that's central, that's important, that's not that's too important to lose under any circumstances that we want to hold through that transition? And I think that that's what comes across to me when I, when I do different episodes, whether it's digital minimalism with Cal Newport, or especially with my episode on surveillance capitalism with Shoshana Zuboff. It is, what does it mean to be a human being? What do I value? What am I unwilling to give up? And what am I willing to fight for in the face of people telling me that the future is that we're all going to become digital avatars 
that we're going to transcend our bodies and upload our brains to the cloud and that this is the future of humanity and that that the soul is really just a a network of connections that can be replicated into a virtual space and it all really is the brain and i think that's you know my personal view is that that sort of view of immortality that you just upload your brain, you create a virtual version of it, is hell. Uh, I mean, it's a, a horrible movie. Is that there's a movie with called Transcendence with Johnny Depp. It's a horrific movie. It's yeah. a movie that I only watched in part because I was on an airplane. But that there is that one part where you know he he uploads to the cloud and he ch he's changed. He's a different person. There's also a great a great scene similarly also that captures this. And this is why movies and stuff like this is so valuable because it really it captures something that can't be expressed in words that the culture isn't even fully able to understand, but it's coming out like Black Mirror. But in uh, the HBO series Westworld, the, have you seen the series? Yeah, loved it. Okay, okay. So, I mean, remember the uh, Scottish guy who's the father of William's wife? Mm -hmm. short barrel chested guy guy was amazing he's a he, amazing actor did play that role perfectly and he's he's he dies unbeknownst to him and he had said that he wanted to be brought back and he's brought back and now he's in this like little like glass you know you know whatever case or whatever basically a room and he wakes up every morning and he goes through the same thing and he plays that you know uh i think it was he what was the song that he played it was uh it was a rolling, not a Rolling Stones. Yeah, was it Rolling Stones? Yeah, it was a Rolling Stones song. And he's like, guy's living in hell. You know, he's like living in hell. He's, uh, he can never actually, because he was changed. So anyway, that that was a, a long-winded response to to what you said about, what started as a question about deep fakes. <laughs> yeah, but I think that, the you know, the other analogy is, you know, the we shape the tools and then the tools shape us is, is another one of the little, um, pillars of, of what you were saying there. And so to me, what I'm always struggling with is, yes, there is, there is real capacity at the individual or the small community or the team level to go make your impact, make your dent on the universe, uh, whatever kind of metaphor that you want to speak, if, if you can be really focused and, and patient and disciplined, what have you. But there are these just, you know, Goliath shifts in the tools and the things that we're interacting with. So, you know, whether that be the deep fakes or just the uh, existence of blockchain based uh, cryptocurrencies or these other things that they're now part of the world. There's not something that, you know, uh, my parents, my parents had their own things that they were um, navigating in the 70s that were their own shifts of the time. But these are the shifts and the changes that are in front of us today. And, you know, without getting into the argument of like, is there like an ultimate kill switch that could take that stuff down? We, we need to just have an inventory of the things in front of us. And I, I, I'm, I'm struggling to, to bring it to the question there, but the idea that, you know, even having legibility into those things that are happening right now in the present, I, I don't know. I, I think that that's, it's getting, it feels like it's getting rarer. Legibility into the things that are happening in the present. What do you mean exactly? Do you mean just, do you, are you basically expressing a sense that reality feels hazy, that the world feels hazier than it used to, and we need to just have a more deterministic sense of what's happening? Yeah, I, I, not that uh, maybe need is is not the right word there, but yes, there, there's there's a haziness in like 
the feeling of to, to, to use the map and the terrain analogy. Mm-hmm. I'm talking to the people and I don't even think they have the same models. Like I can maybe kind of like insinuate or guess the model that they're bringing and kind of see how that's maybe, you know, tied to a, a complete lack of understanding that this force is here in the present right now today. It's not, it's not futurism. It's not, Hey, imagine right. if there was an artificial intelligence yeah. that could perfectly differentiate every single image in a photo that's here today in the present right now. Mm-hmm. Like, are we even just cognizant of where we, where we currently stand? Yeah. Um, no, that's a great point. I mean, I, I do, I said hazy, you didn't say it, but I did say it and it does. I mean, there does seem to be a fog and that does, that's something that makes me nervous. I mean, I've become increasingly nervous when I started the show, like it was way more embracing of the future and excited. And I would, you know, call it optimistic. Um, I mean, I always liked doing those shows that were meant to scare the shit out of my audience. Like I did an episode on cyber warfare, like episode eight. I had an, I had an editor before Stilianos came on, who's my amazing editor who I love to death. I think he came on an episode firmly. He came on an episode 10, I think. So he was almost the very beginning, but they had another editor who had said that um, he was doing my shows. And he said that he, the way he understood what my show was about was that it was, it was meant to, it was basically meant to terrify my audience, which I don't think is true, but it was true for some episodes. So like I was, you know, I started the show in part because I had been, you know, I had, as I said, I had a radio show and a TV show. My TV show ended in 2013, both were financial and I had a, a brain tumor that I had been diagnosed with years before that, that eventually became just really, how do we say, it, highly symptomatic. And I had no choice but to undergo surgery in 2013. And so I kind of just went on this long hiatus from the world of media and technology and finance. And, and actually before finance, I'd gotten my start in tech. Um, I had started a video game company. It was a middleware skill gaming company for the console game industry. And then I moved into application development and design for the television industry, developing on the set-top box environment. So I had some interest in tech to begin with. And so um, I was really not interested in getting back in finance. And around 2015, I started going to meetup groups. So I was going to all these like, you know, do-it-yourself, like IoT stuff or like machine learning or AI or blockchain or whatever. And it was getting me excited again and so when I got, when I really started Hidden Forces, I didn't start it with the, with the thing of like, I want this to be a financial program. It was actually much more drawn to the philosophy, neuroscience, technology, and science. But as it's progressed, I've become more and more focused on the social dimensions, political, economic, and the whole thing about, you know, the fog and the haze, I see it and it worries me. And I, I see also kind of a mob mentality. Um, on social media and elsewhere, where people just can't seem to agree on anything. Everyone's hustling, everyone's pushing their own agenda, and there's no unified sort of um, narrative about anything. And, and that I think does contribute to part of this sort of sense of haziness. We're just kind of not sure, like, who are the authority figures? You know, whether or not, for example, you are, I'm a, I'm a sort of someone who I've always been very, I've always really not taken well to authority. But it still matters who the authority figures are to know who they are. So we're in a period of dramatic change when it comes to authority, you know, whether it's at the international level with the U S led global order or whether it's, it's domestically. 
Uh, people are, are challenging norms. Everything, again, is changing. And in that change, it's almost like the world that was so clear begins to break apart into smaller and smaller pieces that sort of float in front of your face. And it's coming together. And as it's coming together, that's an enormous opportunity because it's an opportunity to imp, inf, influence and shape the world, which is why you see so many people out there pushing their agenda and hustling. Um, and there's so much propaganda. And at the same time, it's a very risky world because in those, in that sort of period of change, a dramatic change can occur. For example, a, uh, uh, a dictator of sorts can emerge in the society because there's a huge vacuum in, in, for that. Or very huge, very big decisions can be made that are going to impact the you know the next hundred years. And if we're not really prepared to to take them correctly, that can be dangerous as well. So, I guess. I don't know what I was responding to exactly, but yeah. I'm, I'm riding with you. I like this. So in that same sense, you know, the, the crumbling of the US-led global order, once again, it's something you're either, you know, you're reading Peter Zion, you're, you know, following Ian Bremmer, you're, you're listening to these folks that have kind of laid out that framework so to make it legible, or it's just not, you know, th there's a whole universe of headlines and media outfits that that's not the 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 that's not what the missionaries are pushing forward that's not the kind of core discussion that, that's being had and yet if you're able to take a more global view and i think i'm particularly guilty of this i'm you know born and raised here in pittsburgh have done some traveling and to try and expand my mind but to even just see things globally as opposed to seeing them through you know an overly us centric lens lends itself to being able to appreciate not just China, but, you know, Greece is immediately adjacent to Turkey. Turkey is, you know, going to have an, an immense influence on the, the coming decades. Talk a little bit about, you know, at a geopolitical level, the narratives, forces that you think people need to be paying more attention to. Yeah, great, great observations. First, I do want to say this is the one area where, I mean, I loved I majored in both political science and economics. And I loved political science. I mean, my U.S. foreign policy class, I've talked about it so many times on the show. It was my favorite class at NYU. I just loved it. And, uh, and I studied it so much on my spare time. But there came a point in time where I, I made this realization, which was that if I really wanted to talk about foreign policy and make this my career, would I be willing to do that if I were not someone who had spent ample time on the ground in conflict zones? And I, I realized I didn't, I didn't, because I, I felt that I couldn't sort of speak about it in a way that felt credible. Uh, you know, I just did, I, everything was secondary, right? I, I wasn't actually experiencing the conflicts for myself. And so I decided that um, as much as I loved it, I'd, I would move into other fields that would be, you know, where I could, where it wasn't as important to sort of get that external data. That said, that's a, it's a way of saying, you know, take everything I have to say uh, in context and with a grain of salt. But given all the time and attention that I spent trying to understand the world through secondary sources or primary sources, but not through my own sensorium. Yeah, I would say again, to this point, it is changing dramatically. The world is changing dramatically and, you know, Greece is a perfect example, Greece and Cyprus and their security, Cyprus especially, but Greece as well, this, their territorial security threatened by a NATO member. This is, um, you know, up until a few years ago, maybe 
20 years ago, the conversation was really, and even 10 years ago, the conversation was really about how quickly can we get Turkey into the union? Greece wanted Turkey into the European Union. Other, other countries in Europe didn't. Me, as a Greek citizen, I certainly understood the case for Turkey being part of the, of the union geopolitically, and it was in Greece's national interests. I actually didn't think it was a good idea because I do think Europe should have borders. And uh, if you were to allow in Turkey, well, then what stops Syria? What stops Lebanon? Why is Turkey? Is it just because Constantinople was there? So um, that, that's a, a larger point, I guess, about, um, you know, it, it kind of fits in. I mean, so the world was moving in this direction that was still uh, being driven by the forces of the end of, the, of World War II the European Union expansion enlargement. That's been on hold now. No one's enlarging anywhere. They're just trying to keep it together. So, um, so that's like obviously a great example. Where is that going to go with Turkey? Not clear. Uh, my, my hope as a Greek citizen, again, is that Turkey ends up getting sucked into and bogged down in conflicts on their eastern and, and uh, southeastern fronts in the Middle East, basically. And that's perfectly possible. The alliances in the region are changing. Israel has forged a much closer relationship with Saudi Arabia now. That's both a political and an economic relationship. Will the Israelis and the Saudis do a deal with the Turks to, to create a new economic zone to pipe oil and natural gas into Europe? How will that impact Greece? So there's a lot. I mean, Greece is in a tough situation geopolitically. You know, you mentioned Ian Bremmer and Peter Zihan. Ian Bremmer is someone whose work I studied as a college student, I believe, senior year, perhaps, or, or right out of college, I was watching tons. Of, yeah, I was probably in college. I was watching tons of like C-SPAN all the time. For years, actually, I did this. And there was a, a great feed that would come on every now and then. It's actually amazing to think about this now. It's so I feel very fortunate that I grew up in this intersection of growing up without internet um, as, a little, as a kid, but more importantly, not having mobile internet until I was out of college and not having social networks until I was out of college. I mean, that's really, to me, the difference. It wasn't the internet. It was the, the switch to ubiquitous connectivity that has transformed society in a way that is, you know, good and bad. But it's funny because like C-SPAN would, you know, you get like the guide function would drop on the screen and say like, you know, this is what's going to be coming up in the next, you know, 24 hours on C-SPAN. And I, the Nixon Center would broadcast their meetings uh, for the National Interest magazine. And Ian Bremmer was there with Dimitri Sims and, um, and, and lots of other people. And, uh, so I, I first became aware of his work then. He was, he's always been a brilliant thinker, and he's been remarkably successful. It's very interesting how we've now seen, we had it during the Bush year, the celebrity financial policy thought leader, but we didn't have what Ian Bremmer has done, and now Peter Zihan is doing, which is building this really powerful business around you know, providing analysis to foreign policy issues and geopolitical issues. So um, you know, Peter Zihan's view, you know, Ian Bremmer's view is, is less, I think, developed or definitive on this front. But Peter Zihan's view on this, and it's compelling, is that uh, in this new world that we're moving into, where America really takes a back seat and the world becomes more multipolar, America is going to thrive. And America is going to thrive, in his view, because America benefits from all the strategic advantages. It has, and also, uh, it also has 
besides all the strategic geopolitical advantages, it has an exceptional body of legal of legal history, a culture that embraces freedom and privacy. Again, these things have been challenged, property rights, and so it'll become a destination for capital. I think that's a very compelling argument. I would tend to agree with it. And I, but I think, and to, to, to Zihan's point, because I think Zihan's theories and people like, basically a, a, view, a view of geopolitics that takes in, that really puts geography front and center, uh, which again, this will go, this, this is strongly opposed by one of my recent guests, Balaji Srinivasan, whose view of the network state is that actually it's going to be the opposite, that borders don't really matter, geographies matter less and less, and eventually we're all just going to be, our, our digital relationships are going to be primary to the physical world. So, but I think that, you know, areas like the Middle East are in trouble. Border areas, traditional frozen conflicts, whether it's in Azerbaijan with Armenia, or whether it's in um, Kurdistan, or whether or, or Kashmir, or uh, in Taiwan, the Taiwan Strait, these are um, these are going to flare up, and I think these are the these are the canaries in the coal mine. That's where you need to look for for the beginning of, and it's already happening. So, um, so I think security is going to become increasingly important, and citizens are going to demand uh, a, put a higher premium on security than they have been putting on it, which I think empowers governments, which is why I've also said that in this new century, I'm actually bullish on governments. Contra- this, oppose- this is uh, strongly opposed to the, block- to the blockchain writ large and particularly Bitcoin community, which believes that the power will now move towards the merchant classes and towards an independent monetary sovereign. And I actually think that misses the the larger point that people will feel more insecure today than they did under the U.S. global order. And the reason why we've been able to have all these experiments around money is because the U.S. has provided this umbrella of safety. So that's sort of my initial answer to your question. And and that security generally has all sorts of ramifications. So in in a more or less peaceful series of decades because of that global order, you take for granted that that has become so sublimated behind the narratives, behind the stuff that we're consuming on the surface. It's hard to really consider all the assumptions of something like that switching, something like that changing, which, you know, someone like Zion does a great job of, of at least, you know, pointing to, and then articulating what the potential ramifications of that could be. Mm-hmm. But the hard, hard thing to do is to, number one, we're all mimetic creatures. You hear a great story. It's mm-hmm. really hard not to just latch onto that and be like, hell yeah, give me more of that. I'm, I'm you know, going to completely adopt that and be someone who is taking information from high quality sources. How you even, how you even judge that? I don't, I don't want to get into that, but like taking you know, information from high quality surf- sources so that you can start to make um, some conclusions. And, and I find myself being more, the, the, the instinct to be more globally aware, partially because of the pandemic, it's a great catalyst for something like that. But that also is a kind of awakening that needs to happen. And not just because, you know, I have a family friend that's being deployed to Okinawa is going to be right there by the strait, you know, near Taiwan. If something happens, going to be involved in some way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the stuff that that pulls you like a magnet so that you must pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. But then there's the opportunities to just actually, you know, bring your head up and try to have that larger, more global view. 
Yeah. You know what, what I, what came to mind while you were speaking was, well, I just love these conversations. I got to say, like, I love engaging in interesting, thoughtful discussions about things because it, it, first of all, it really helps me it, besides the fact that it just is pleasurable. Um, and I, and I, and I thought about how wonderful it would be if we just had more and more of these conversations because there are so many issues to work through. And it, again, to, to the, to something I mentioned earlier on about feeling a bit fearful and dark sometimes, the cacophony makes me feel anxious. It creates a, and this, this might also have to do with just, you know, the way I grew up and, you know, I didn't grow up feeling very f- secure for all sorts of reasons. And I think that when I, the environment today, and I'm going a little bit off of what you said, I didn't mean to sort of go take a tangent, but the environment today, the, that cacophony, the constant arguing, there was a tipping point for me uh, recently with the, or maybe, or maybe around the time of the storming of the Capitol building, I think actually, I think when I think about it now, I'm pretty sure the moment was the day that I had the um, Blockworks guys on Jason Yanowitz and Michael Ippolito. And, it, and we talked about it a bit in the overtime. I think it was around that time. I just, I, I, it was a tipping point for me where I felt like this is just, we're t- in a too much of an unsafe environment and they're just don't, they're not enough adults. There are too, people, too many people running around. And this is an issue that I have with the Bitcoin community or with certain elements of the Bitcoin community, which I don't find to be true with like Ethereum people, which is that there's a strong impulse to burn it all down. And, um, you know, I just think that would be a, a universally awful idea. But at the same time, I kind of get where they're coming from because when I was in my early 20s, you know, with the Iraq war and everything, there were, I had a strong impulse to say, you know, fuck it. This state is corrupt. Um, you know, we need to burn it down more or less because uh, I wasn't as concerned. I hadn't built so much. I hadn't lived so much and learned so much and, and created so much in the world that I loved and saw value in what existed and wanted, didn't want to just, you know, burn it all. You, you mentioned, you know, at the very beginning of your answer about, uh, I think something along the lines of like trusting sources of data or something like that. Again, that makes me think a little bit about oracles, decentralized oracles and chain link and this conversation that I'm going to have. But it also makes me think about how people like me and you and other people with podcasts or television programs or a regular, you know, Substack destination have become, grown much more powerful in today's world than we, than we would have been 10 years ago or five years ago. Joe Rogan's the classic example, although Joe, that's not Joe Rogan's primary function. And I think that's because in this world where the sort of authority figures and institutions that we had, you know, a consensus view on that we sort of, oh yeah, the New York Times says it, we all more or less agree that it's true. In a world where that's coming apart, ironically, even though the world is becoming more digitized, what we're relying on is more of our more innate biological tendencies to trust other people. And so we see Joe Rogan, we say, I believe Joe Rogan. If Joe Rogan says something, Maybe he's wrong because he doesn't understand it, but I know that he's not lying to me. And I think people are looking for people that they can trust in a world that feels un- increasingly untrustworthy and I, and I would argue unsafe. And I think that might also be a little bit why 
if you'll notice, I mean, I did, I did, uh, I wrestled in school throughout high school and I picked up jujitsu and then Muay Thai when I was in college and I did it up until my brain surgery, pretty much. i when I was doing martial arts, not many people knew how to fight. And there was a, a sense that, you know, if, if you ever did get into a fight, especially if you didn't start it, you could feel pretty safe that, you know, you, you were going to know what you're doing. And the other guy wasn't necessarily going to be like, you know, some expert MMA fighter. That was not like a common thing today. Lots of people know how to fight and lots of people are interested in martial arts. And lots of people are also interested in hunting. There's this whole, you know, thing about hunting and killing your own animal and cook skinning it and cooking it, preserving it. And Joe Rogan's at the center of both of those trends. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think part of it is because people are trying to find, again, some sense of identity and foundation. What does it mean to be a person, a human being in this world that's changing? And I think some of it also has to do with safety. Um, and I think I actually, you know, I've had this thought in much more concrete terms because I, I remember when I was growing up um, watching movies like, you know, Karate Kid's a great, ex great example or other movies that took place in the, you know, in the 70s or shows in the 70s or 80s. That's where that's when martial arts really became popular in the U.S. And I think a big part of that had to do with some of the security concerns in urban environments. Cities weren't as safe. Like New York was a really scary place. And during the pandemic, when my building was broken into a number of times, I thought I could see now how MMA and all sorts of other self-defense forms and weapons will become more popular than they used to be. So I think that's a really interesting trend that I would keep an eye on, which is self-defense and all the whole economy that can come up around self-defense, whether we're talking digitally or physically. Yeah. Um, I've sent me down so many different rabbit holes that you started at the beginning of this conversation as we aim towards wrapping up on truth too. And the beauty of both hunting and self-defense is there's a lot of truth in it too. You can't lie about, Hey, I just got kicked in the head. Mm -hmm. He can't lie about where did this deer that I, you know, hunted came from. I was in the forest where it was. So I think that that also ties in really nicely to the, the kind of themes that we've touched on today, Dimitri, we're, we're running up on, on the, the limits of the time that we set aside for this conversation. I'm really hopeful that we can do it again in the future. But before I ask the standard last two questions that I do with every interview, just wanted to check and see if there's anything else you were hoping to share today that I didn't give you a chance. That's a to. really great. No, that's a really great point that you made. I actually love what you said. One, I'll take the one that I liked, but didn't, it just wasn't the one that I loved but I really like it and I agree, which was that you know where your food came from. It's definitive. Like there's, and what does that really speak to? And well, one of the things it speaks to is trust. I don't need to trust where the food came from. I know where it came from. There's less complexity in the food chain. And to your point early on about the increase in complexity and trying to get our, wrap our heads around it. But the one I really resonated with me was about getting your ass kicked or getting kicked in the head. And, um, you know, I, I don't know, I, I, this maybe is a little too close to home or too literal, but which is that when I was growing up for all sorts of reasons, I moved a lot. I would, I, there were often times where I would get into fights and getting into fights was scary uh, for all sorts of reasons. But the one thing that I always liked about it was that it was once it, once a fight broke out, there was a resolution. The resolution was imminent. And what was one of the challenges for me as becoming an adult was that you had to navigate conflict in a much more different way. 
and which is fine and appropriate. We should not be going around and getting into fights with people or physical confrontations. But what's happened today is this has gone to, gone to such an extreme today where you can be cursed at, maligned, and, and, and ultimately canceled and your life destroyed all through some words that are also taken out of context or manipulated or whatever. And you feel, and, and people who may have felt strong in their physical space, you know, over the course of their life, or even to this moment, like if you, if you know, like that there, you're not going to get pushed around. We live in a world today where a lot of people who are otherwise strong human beings can be easily bullied. And I think that's a really, you know, it's an interesting observation. And, um, and I think that's for me, the appeal of, I love when I, I, that's what I love about Joe Rogan. I really love that the most popular show in the world today is a guy who knows how to fight, doesn't approach fighting as this thing that uh, he should, he's, you know, I'm, I'm sure Joe Rogan has his moments um, or has certainly had them growing up feeling cocky, but he's humble and he's been around really, really, I mean, the biggest ass kicking people in the world. So, um, so like, I just love that that's being introduced into the zeitgeist because I think it's really, really important. Any ending thoughts? No, I mean, this was a really great conversation. I think it was, this was awesome. I really, I really enjoyed it. Well, I enjoyed it too. And I really want people to follow, find some digital coordinates where they can connect with you um, and, and check out episodes of the show. What coordinates can we provide for folks that want to do so, Dimitri? So I would say first and foremost, they can follow me on Twitter at Kofinas with a K, K-O-F as in Frank, I-N as in Nancy, A-S as in Sam. I learned that my dad, when I was a kid, he would always be, he's the doctor and he would be on the phone and be like, Kofinas with a, a F as in Frank. But <laughs> I've learned that I have to also do it for the N and the S. So at Kofinas, also at Hidden Forces Pod on Twitter, both of those. And then obviously at our website, hiddenforces.io, there's a pop-up where you can give your name, email, and zip and be added to our mailing list. We're going to be, uh, I've been saying this for a long time that we're going to start using that soon, but we really are. I hired a team of consultants to help me sort of build Hidden Forces to, to change it, to add structure around it, to make, to really grow it in a way that's more consistent with my vision. Because up until now, it's been primarily kind of like, a, it's been run almost like a hobby, even though it's not anymore. So those are my, th those are my three recommendations. At Caffeinus, at Hidden Forces Pod, both on Twitter and the website, hiddenforces.io. And then of course, anywhere on any podcast application you have, you just search Hidden Forces, you'll find, you'll find the show. Wonderful. We're going to have that linked. It's in the show notes for this and every episode of the show at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast or in the app. We are probably listening to this episode right now. But before I let you go, Dimitri, first of all, I'm going to just reiterate that I, you know, for a podcast junkie like myself, there's like the, you know, the A tier, the B tier, the C tier of shows and the A tiers, when they drop, I know I'm listening to them. I just don't know exactly when the B tier, once I get through the A tier, I get, I, you know, listen to my B tier shows and then the C ones for, it's a particularly, you know, a uh, heavy week of driving or something like that. And yours is firmly in the A tier. I learn stuff there consistently um, and have my mind expanded. So I really appreciate that. And I want to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. You know, you told me about this before the episode started. So I actually wrote some stuff down because I, this is actually, and I was surprised at what came out 
Well, I'm not so much. I was surprised at what came out. I was surprised at how much came out. I had a lot of thoughts about this. Um, you know, one of the, the things that I think is important for people to try and do is to hold themselves to a, a higher standard, to the, to the standard of their idyllic self when it comes to public interactions. So like, I, I you know, I, I can use myself as an example here. I've done all sorts of things in my life that I'm embarrassed of, um, that I felt like were not magnanimous, were petty, uh, particularly petty, uh, born out of insecurity, for example. That was, that's always been a thing for most of my life. Um, where I've let my insecurity and my emotions dictate my actions. And I see this a lot on social media and other places. People are really dickish. They're mean, they're gross, they're vindictive, they're jealous, they're envious, they're narcissistic. And I think people really need to try and be their, their best selves in public. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean that you're, you, know, you can't make mistakes, but try to, try to keep those for your personal life. Um, and really try to set an example and say, you know, the person that sees what I tweet or the person that hears me on this podcast, who, what will they think? Who will they think I am? And is that person consistent with who I want to be? And I think there's, that's the difference. There's, there's a difference between being who you want to be versus being somebody else. You should always be yourself, but you should be yourself. I think at least in public circumstances, the person that you want to be, that you strive to be every day. So I think that's the first challenge I would tell people. The second one sort of applies to that, which is to put space between your thoughts and your actions or your emotions and your actions, because that also will help you be a better person and be more the person you want. So that means, again, when it comes to social media, don't tweet it right away and ask yourself, why am I tweeting this? What is the reason that I'm doing this? And is the reason consistent with who I want to be? And that's true, not just there, it's true in all sorts of other areas, but it's surprisingly easy to do on social media if you just implement the practice because you know it's there's a digital interface here. Also, I would say put boundaries around your mobile devices and your connected devices. There are all sorts of ways to do this. I did it when I started Hidden Forces. That was, I wouldn't probably wouldn't be able to do it otherwise. I took an old iPhone. I swapped out the card with my new one. I made it so there was just phone and text, no internet, nothing else, just phone and text. And it helped me get unaddicted, uh, lose my addiction within a week. Now I'm back to being addicted and I'm trying to figure that out. <laughs> but that's because, you know, I'm trying to navigate promoting my show. I don't actually enjoy being on Twitter like I used to when I was much more self-absorbed and I was, you know, kind of my TV program. Um, now I'd really do it for marketing and I really wish I would, I, I don't particularly enjoy it, but I do engage, I do enjoy getting feedback and engaging with people. Another thing I, I thought of that I wrote uh, was, and this is the last thing, is to try not to judge people. You know, I think, again, to my point about me having done things or said things in my life that I'm not proud of, I think one of those things has been to be overly harsh in my criticism and judgment of people. And again, a lot of that has was and, you know, has been born out of insecurity. I've heard Tim Ferriss talk about this when he says, you know, if someone doesn't get back to you, if you send an email to someone and they don't get back to you, let's say a perfect example, would be if you send an email to Tim Ferriss and he doesn't get back to you, you know, don't take it personally. Don't like, you know, take everything as an affront against you or it's what it says about you. It doesn't have to do with you. You know, people are busy. They're overwhelmed. You know, that's just one example, but there are all sorts of ways in which your mind, you know, it's like that sort of concept of mind mapping. You're you're in, you're, you're, you think you know what the other person's thinking or where their intentions are. 
you know, but a lot, most of the time you're just projecting. So, you know, try not to judge people and, you know, just focus on yourself, focus on being a better person, focus on being accountable. And, I'll, and I want to say there's someone who really does this in a beautiful way. A friend of mine, Grant Williams, who has a podcast that's very successful. He's been in media a long time. I've only started now to become a, to become even as even close to as magnanimous um, and good a public person as as Grant is, because for years in my interactions with Grant, he was always so giving, and Joe Rogan is like this as well, and Tim Ferriss is like this also. Th- they have reputations of being very giving. Joe Rogan has transformed the, the the comedy circuit. You know, comedians traditionally have been very selfish. Um, at least that's how they've been described to me. Um, and Joe Rogan and you know competitive. And Joe Rogan has really opened his arms um, to that. And it's not surprising he feels very secure. He's secure in his work. He's secure in himself, and he's able to do that. Grant is a is a is a perfect example of that he's a remarkably giving individual. And so I often ask myself, and I also do this with with Jim Grant as well. Both Grants. Jim Grant is someone who um, I got to know early on in my career, and we've become friends over the years. And I and he's such a gentleman, the way he treats people. And so I think it's you know, again to, to end it on that point. Look to look try to find the people who you think live an admirable life. It's not just about money or success, but whose character and values you you value. You say I want people to see me that way. And try and measure yourself up to them every day. That helps me. So, you know, that's what I would say. Beautiful. Powerful notes to wrap up on um, and a lot to aspire to as we make our way in the world. Uh, Dimitri, I am very grateful that you agreed to come on the show. I really enjoyed talking with you and uh, look forward to doing it again soon. My pleasure. Thanks, Aaron. We just went deep with Dimitri Kofinas. Hope for another a fantastic day. Thank you so much for listening to the end of my conversation with Dimitri. If you like this big mega trend philosophy style type of conversation, make sure you check out our back catalog, including the conversation with Jeff Booth, the author of The Price of Tomorrow, where he talks about the deflationary nature of technology, how that impacted his career, and the implications for all of us moving into the future. If you want to be prepared, Make sure you keep it tuned to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.